This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In his novel, Long Division, Kiese Lehman writes that if you haven't read or written or listened to something at least three times, you have never really read, written, or listened to it. Now, I'm not going to hold you to that standard on the Reckon interview, but we are welcoming back our first repeat guest this week. I'm John Hammontree, and today we are speaking again with Kiese Lehman. Over the past few years, Kiese has bought back the rights to some of his early, critically acclaimed books. How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America is a revelatory collection of essays, and Long Division is a mind-bending novel about City Colson, a 14-year-old Mississippian who stumbles across a novel also named Long Division that is also about a child named City Colson. And it's a story that will take him on a journey through Mississippi's past and the potential to change the future. Revision is a common theme throughout our discussion. Why would he buy back his books and then dedicate himself to rewriting them if they were already beloved? How does changing our collective understanding of history through things like the 1619 Project affect our present and our future? And how do you update works to reflect evolving social norms while staying true to the original work and the original characters? We've talked a lot about story this season, and the story of the South is one that is constantly being revised. Kiese Lehman talks about his role in that, what's next for him, and if he's really leaving Mississippi. Oh, and just a quick heads up, there's a lot of cussing in this episode, so you may or may not want to listen to it with your kids around. So let's run it back on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Yes, A. Lehman, thanks for coming back to The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me, John. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you've spent the last couple of years, I guess, securing the rights to your early work and then are now publishing new and revised versions. And for, you know, a lot of us who aren't writers or in that industry, we're wondering, you know, why dedicate yourself to that task of revisiting and, and reworking old work rather than working on something new? I love that question. I feel like people all think that question, but nobody asks it. You know, the, the good thing about revision is that you can revise while creating new stuff. You know what I'm saying? So last few years, I've been working on some TV. I've been working on this novel. This is actually difficult to turn it in today. But I also, you know, got a better publishing relationship with Scribner. They wanted to publish my first two books. And, you know, it was hard to get those books back from Agate. When I eventually paid the money to get the books back, I was like, I want to make the books better. I want to make the books books that, like, I'm more proud of. And I had been revising Long Division since it came out the first time because it never it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. How to slowly, I just had written all these essays. I just wanted to take some of those other essays out that I'm going to do something new with and put some other essays in. So really, it's like I put essays in there for my time in Mississippi between 2015 and 2020. And then I took out five essays, put those in, and told a story backwards. But mainly, it's just like I was coming to a new publisher. And I really wanted those pieces in the world the way I wanted them to be in the world. And I could do it. So I did it. And you had to buy back the rights to your own words. Yeah, bro. That dude bought How to Slowly. I mean, I, I, I'm saying that guy, but, you know, to get to a point where I'm selling How to Slowly Kill Yourself for $1,000, the entire industry has to tell you no. You know what I'm saying? So I can talk about what, what the people at Agate did. One thing you can say is they gave me a chance. But, you know, I'm, I'm like that big eyed boy from Mississippi no matter what. And, like... I thought, oh, we a team. I'm like, yo, you bought a book for a G. We sold like 40,000 copies. You made a killing. And then I was like, well, can we revise? That's my first thing. But I didn't want to take the books back. I was like, well, I want. I have these ideas about revision. 
And the guy was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And I was like, all right, well, give me my books back. And he was like, well, you have to make an offer. And I'm like, make you an offer? I made you about $250,000, bro. Like, he was like, yeah, what's the offer? And initially the offer was like high, you know, mid six figures. He bought How to Slowly for $1,000. There are essays in that How to Slowly Kill Yourself that I got paid $15,000 to write. And this dude bought it for one G. All right, fine. He bought Long Division for three. And at the end of the day, I, you know, thanks to my lawyers and my agents, we got the price down. And you might, one must say thanks to Agate too from 300,000 to 50,000. So I had to pay $50,000 to get my books back to publish them the way I wanted to. Shitty, but I'm, I'm glad it happened. This is not necessarily a natural comparison, but you know, we're seeing Taylor Swift do the same thing with her music right now where she had to buy her music back and is now releasing it her way. And even like beyond that, you know, it's common to hear re-release versions of music. It doesn't seem as common in literature, or maybe it's just not as easily well-known. I mean, definitely with like nonfiction, you'll see updated versions with new material. But with novels, you know, did you have any anxiety about revisiting these books that were already critically praised and, and kind of beloved that, you know, you might have a polarizing effect on your audiences? I, I think from Scribner's point of view, they're like heavy sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And I think from their point of view, they're like, we got these other two books from KSA that just that a lot of readers don't know about. Those two books were like cult classics, right? Like the people who, who rocked with them, they rocked with them hard. But then the hard part is like, how do I go in there and tinker and not fuck it up for the people who loved it? You know what I mean? Like, because the people who love those books, that's the reason I'm here with you now. Like if those people, the people who love those books didn't love those books with the intensity that they did, I wouldn't have a reputation that I started to have literarily. I wouldn't have anything. So, so I don't want to tinker too much to like throw those people out, but I still want to see if I can go in there and move some shit substantially and still keep that audience, but also widen the audience that I'm actually looking to reach. And a lot of that audience is young people. You know what I'm saying? Like, I really want this book taught more in high schools and middle schools and it in jails. And it already was, but it wasn't like I wanted to, you know, it's not like heavy's taught in tons of high schools, tons of colleges, tons of jails. I just wanted that, that book to be something I was much more proud of, actually. And and also, I just wanted to collaborate with people I trust. You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't trust those people after I asked them if we could do something different. And they were like, no, I you know I lost my trust in those people. It's hard to collaborate with people you don't trust. In, in some ways, Long Division was a book itself about revision. I mean, you know, one of your characters has the line repeatedly, you've never really read, written, or listened to something unless until you've read, written, or listened to something three times. And I know for a, a lot of people, the editing process is a lot harder than writing. I, I hate <laughs> editing my own work. Revision is clearly something that you think about a lot. You just wrote a New York Magazine piece about revision. What is it that draws you to that idea as a concept? I wrote that piece for the New York Magazine and, and Vox from a hospital room, man. Somebody I'm really close to was going through something really bad and was having a number of surgeries. And it was the first time I was just like, I want to just state plainly what revision is to me. And I think I describe it as like a dynamic system of revisitation, like premised on ethically reconceiving like the ingredients, the audience and the shape and the scope. So like revision for me is religion. Like I'm not saying it is God, but like, I don't know what the fuck education is if you don't, you know, if you don't look at what revision is. And so I live that shit. I want to live it more. And long division, it is all about revision. You know what I mean? Like I'm kind of working on this whole meta thing that I I, I don't want to give away, but like, yeah, like 
I mean, if there's ever a book that was going to have another version of itself, it was going to be Long Division because that's what that book is all about, right? There's going to be many different versions of Long Division out in this world. Hopefully by the time I'm dead, I don't know if I can pull that off or not, but I just want to, I just always want to be able to look back at things that I've done, especially things that I think I've done well and, and see how I could do them, not just better, but more ethically. For example, Long Division, a lot of the language I used in that book was ableist. The characters were saying ableist shit. They're still saying ableist shit, but the book now is aware of it and you can't come away from that book. Well, you shouldn't come, I, I don't know if you, it'd be harder to come away from that book and be like, that's the ableist book, you know what I'm saying? Because now there's some, I did some changes in there where like the book is critiquing the ableist slurs. That wasn't there before, you know what I'm saying? Like the book was participating in like ableist culture. I didn't go back to just a quote, quote unquote, like wash it clean of that shit. But things change, our sensibilities change. And if I'm able to, I want to go back in there and make sure that the book changes with the best parts of our nation as a nation changes. I was able to do it, luckily. Well, and you said, you know, you want this book to continue to be and to be taught more in schools now than it even has been. You know, I'm an adult man, fairly well read, who's reading these books and, and can parse through some of that language. But how do you make that language and that distinction accessible to children who aren't necessarily equipped with that emotional maturity? You know, the real answer to that is you just, I mean, you write the book you need to write, and then you just pray that the teacher who is shepherding that shit into spaces is doing it with some like ability and care and integrity. Because, I mean, that's what we know. I mean, that's the sad thing about what we do in these schools is like, a teacher can make or break a book, which in turn can make or break a kid. You know what I'm saying? So I try to give language. I try by the end of that book to, to make everybody understand the critiques that the book is making about anti-Semitism. And definitely, I mean, about so much about misogyny, about all, all the things that I think are fucked up. But if there's a way I could be too didactic, you know what I mean? Like if you finish that book and you'd be like, this book is about how we shouldn't be anti-immigrant and we shouldn't be anti, you know, like that ain't what I want to write. But I also don't want to write shit that encourages that. But it's it's risky. If you stop reading that book after 20 pages where City is like, Lavander Peeler says being racist is fun. He's kind of right. Then you're going to think this is a racist-ass book, you know, that's encouraging people to be racist. And it's not. It's a, it's a risk. For our audience who hasn't read Long Division yet, uh, either version, just a quick kind of synopsis. You have a character, City, who finds a book called Long Division that includes a character named City, who is in, at least in one version, is in 1985. And then there are several copies of this unauthored Long Division book in this novel that take people throughout time. It's a time travel story that has some ramifications similar to Back to the Future, where if you change the past, does it change the future? Right now, we're, we're having that conversation kind of as a broader culture, maybe not more than we've ever had it, but certainly it's very heated and omnipresent. The idea of revising history and sometimes revisionist history is thrown around as like a weird conservative attack term. But we're seeing this fight over things like the 1619 Project, over things like Confederate monuments and Harriet Tubman on the 20. <laughs> our approach to understanding our history, it seems like liberals, conservatives, leftists recognize that the past shapes who we might become in the future. Where do you see yourself and these books in this conversation? I'm in that 1619 project and they asked me to write about Jesse Jackson's speech, I think 1984 speech. And for the longest, I was just like, man, these conservatives are so silly. 
But I didn't realize they were going to make a movement about getting this shit taken out. Because, you know, let me tell you why, John. I am friends and collaborators with a lot of, like, really cutting-edge radical people. Those cutting-edge radical people think the 1619 Project is tame. You know what I'm saying? So, like, people I was talking to were like, I'm glad you contributed to it, but, like, do you feel like it it did enough? So then to hear it, like, the conservative people come out and be like, it's doing way too much. I don't know why it shocked me, but it, it did shock me. But, yeah, like, I'm always trying to create art that encourages us to rethink the ways we've been taught. And there's no doubt, growing up Mississippi, we were taught lessons that benefit white supremacy. I never read a book my entire life in Mississippi, in high school or middle school or elementary, where there was a Black protagonist in Black Ass Jackson. Never. I didn't read one. Like, we read a snippet of Black Boy, but we didn't read that entire book. I'm saying, why do we need a 1619 Project? Because education in this country has failed children. So 1619 is one of the hopefully many correctives that we're going to put in there. But, you know, 1619 hopefully will be corrected 10 years from now as well. Like if you believe in revision, you have to also long and hope for like all of this stuff to be revised. What the worst parts of those people are doing are they're saying the way that we taught y'all, the way we were taught should not be revised. Like whether I agree with that politically or not, like we have to revise shit. We have to look at something and look at what it has created and produced and ask ourselves how we can ethically be better than that. And so 1619 Project generously is an attempt at American revision. And like most American revision, the worst of fucking Americans are going to be like, we don't want to revise. Fuck you. You know, we're going to do this shit anyway. Coming up after the break, more from Kiese Lehman about how we are revising our understanding of Southern history and about his complicated relationship with the University of Mississippi. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. And how to slowly kill yourself and others in America. I'm just going to call it how to slowly kill yourself for the, for the rest of the conversation. You have an essay at the very beginning that you wrote during the COVID-19 pandemic. I believe both of these books came out originally during Obama's second term. So before Trump, before COVID-19, before George Floyd. In retrospect, it was maybe a naively optimistic time in America, but it was certainly a more optimistic time than the last few years have been. Did it change the tenor of long division as well? You know what's so crazy about Long Division is that the first draft of it was drafted during the Bush presidency. And real talk, you know, when Bush was like, people were like, you know, what is Bush going to do with torture, Guantanamo Bay? And I just kept imagining like what I would do to George Bush if I had him in a work shed. Like, what would I do to make him not be like George Bush? Because the best thing about Trump for people like Bush is that for ignorant people, you know, they forgot what Bush did. I guess, conveniently, to fucking millions of Muslim people. He forgot what Bush Bush did to Iraq, forgot what Bush did in fucking, like, Katrina in New Orleans. How fucked up must we be for this nation to elect a Black president? You have to know, it had to be so fucked up, fam. I was thinking, I don't want to torture anybody, but if I had someone locked up in a work shed was the most despicable person in the the history of the nation because they had the most power, what would I do? And that's one of the things that got me to that part of Long Division, which is about like this dude who has hurt this Black kid and maybe hurt a few others. And he's locked in that shed. And he doesn't realize at first that his grandmama, his uncle, and the community members are coming up in there taking out 
years of frustration on this dude and talk about like slipperiness. Like, again, I don't believe in jails. I don't believe in like punishment. I don't believe in bullets. But I do know that the people I grew up with, if they had a white boy who they could torture, given all the shit white boys have done to them, and they believe that white boy hurt a young person in their community or worse, killed, there's no telling what they would do to that man. For me, I'm just saying that is a lot of what sort of made that plot point possible. The book started during the Bush presidency. And then the revisions, I went back and you know had to place it 2012, 2013. Well, on one hand, the book is Yes, Obama is this like shining light. But there's also like lines in there where City is like, damn, bro, like you see why you shouldn't be calling us thugs? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like that shit hurts. You calling us fucking thugs. Like, what do white people have to do to be called thugs? You know, City wonders that. I wonder that. What happens if Obama calls the people who treated him and his family like shit thugs? much less the police officers who brutalizing these young people. So I started writing that book during the, during the Bush regime. And then I wanted to, to talk and think about how the Obama presidency would impact like these specific black children. Well, and you just went over some of the most serious themes throughout the book, but I mean, the book is also just really laugh out loud, funny, a lot of the book, <laughs> but the, the satirical element, thinking about the scene at the very beginning it's not a spelling bee. It's a can you use this word in a sentence B. The game is rigged. And it's very reminiscent of this scene at the beginning of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, where, you know, they're fighting over this briefcase and the chance to get out. And it's, it's clearly all rigged for the entertainment of white people. And so it does have that kind of touchstone of Southern literature and Black literature. What are some other references that you were thinking through as you were working on, on your novels? The Battle Royale scene in Invisible Man is completely a remix of that. But also, it's just like, you know, I, I grew up, I'm not sure how old you are, but I don't, if, you know, people my age, we grew up like right before hip hop blows up. And so we, we're that generation where we didn't know what the fuck hip hop is. And then we are immersed with it, right? And hip hop at its root, I understand, you know, it's, it's breaking, it's DJing, it's graffiti writing, it's MCing. But a lot of it is really like sentence contests, right? Like rhyming sentence contests. I didn't want to make the protagonist engage in like battle rap because that already exists. I did want him to do something like that, which is like freestyle with these words. I'm going to give you these words and y'all going to freestyle. And then these white judges are going to decide if they like the freestyle or not. It's a crazy premise, but I just wanted to take the battle royale and take, I guess, like a, a hallmark of like battle rap and put it and make it like the conceit of the book, right? Like that book doesn't exist if that contest doesn't exist. And, and he becomes internet famous because of the way he performed after losing, which is another thing, you know, which, which I think a lot of young people, oh, some young people have to deal with now. It, it started with Allison and wanting to mesh the battle royale and like, like hip hop. Earlier on this season, we talked with Regina Bradley about her book, Chronicling Stanconia and kind of the the rise of outcasts in the hip hop South. And you have an essay in How to Slowly Kill Yourself about your first exposure to outcasts and kind of what that meant to you. Uh, and you just talked about, you know, kind of coming up where suddenly hip hop was everywhere. I mean, did that shape your thoughts about how you could succeed as a writer? It, it made you want to be a rapper. You know what I'm saying? Like, because that's just, this is just the hard part. It's just like, man, like we were baptized into it. Like we baptized ourselves into hip hop. Like it dictated the kind of shoes we wore, how we talked to ourselves, how we dreamt, what we dreamt about. It gave us language. It made us feel seen in a, in a mass way. And then you go to school 
And in none of your classes, your teachers don't give a fuck about any of that. So growing up, it's just like, I didn't really think hip rhyming and hip hop had anything to do with writing. I mean, the writing that could make you like a journalist or a book writer. I wrote a lot of rhymes and we spit a lot of rhymes in the bathroom and we we had a lot of rhymes on, a, on the bus going to basketball games and whatnot. And so I, I was like, man, I feel free when I'm writing rhymes. Matter of fact, like when I first started writing for the newspaper in high school, my writing was completely antithetical to like the music that I liked. I, my writing was like, I thought look, I'm a writer, like I need to be tight. You know, I need to say hitherto and hence and all that kind of shit. And real talk, it wasn't until I got up to Oberlin College, I got kicked out of Millsaps. I get to Oberlin in 1995 and I started reading this dude named uh, Rob Marriott. And he was writing for The Source, I think writing a little bit for XSL. He was one of the people who started XSL magazine, but he was also a student at, at Oberlin. I was like, oh shit, like he's doing this sort of thinking that I'm doing on the page, but he's doing it in a language that like I actually like, not language that I'm like visiting. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, my, my entire style changed, man. Like, but that was also the era where you would go by the source because the writers who were writing about hip hop were like heroic as the MCs. I mean, maybe I wanted to be Dream Hampton or, or Chael Coker or some or, or, or Kiba Solomon, somebody like that, or Charlie Braxton. But I never thought I could write novels influenced by this music and culture. I never thought that. You know, because of people like you and, and Jasmine Ward who have become kind of the new faces of southern literature i mean i don't know if that's a distinction you carry yourself but like i see your blurb on almost every book that ever comes out of mississippi now and almost every book that comes out of the south do you feel some sort of responsibility to grow that movement in mississippi absolutely no question brother like that's that's forever. That's a forever thing for one reason. One is, again, I had to sell these books for $1,000 and $3,000 because I ain't have nobody who was really like, let me, you know, much, let me put a blurb on your book or, you know, let me put you in touch with this person or I'm not knocking it. I just didn't have it. And so once I worked my way into a position of influence, I was never going to not influence people if they wanted it. You know, I'm not, I'm not the person who's going to like try to dictate your career, but if you are from Mississippi, and I don't care really who you look. I mean, you, you got to have politics that we sort of, I got, to, I got to sort of agree with some of your politics. I can't just put my name on nobody's shit, but I'm gonna do everything I can to encourage this world to give your work a chance because Jasmine, like people don't realize Jasmine went with the same fucking publisher that I went with first. I followed her to Agate because nobody was fucking with us. Like Jasmine's first book, Where the Line Bleeds, comes out with Agate. My book comes out with Agate like a year or so later. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but one is because nobody believed that there was an audience for the stuff we were writing. And so sometimes people still believe that. So yeah, if you, for whatever reason, think that my name, you know, means quality or something, or I'm going to do it. That's the thing about what I've done, man. Like I think about my work on the page and I, I want to get better, but as a writer, like the thing I'm most satisfied with is my work off of the page. You know what I mean? And that can be getting our people agents, getting our people book deals, getting our people spots in magazines. And all that does is it broadens. And I always tell folks, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I can do. And I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. Like we have to collectively push Mississippi writing any way we can. And you can do it without trying to dictate. That's all I'm trying to say. You can do it without trying to be like a puppet master. That's file too. If I can help people, bro, like I'm always going to help our people in Mississippi. So much of How to Kill Yourself 
and, and to some extent heavy, was about your journey to get back to Mississippi, growing up there in Mississippi, going to Oberlin, teaching at Vassar, making your way back to Oxford and University of Mississippi. There's some talk now that you might be leaving to go to Rice in January of 2022. Was that a tough decision, especially when so many people do associate you, you know, as somebody who's going to put on for Mississippi all the time to, to make that decision to possibly leave that state? It's a it was a real tough decision to even at this stage in my life and career. Thankfully, like people who want me to work for them ask me to come. I don't apply to anything if people don't ask. So when they asked me, I you know, frankly, there was just some terrible things happening at the University of Mississippi and then particularly in my apartment, department and program. So then I was like, yeah, I'll apply. But you know, a lot of things happen, bro. Like COVID happened, the awakening happened. And I'm just real, I'm just torn because I'm from Jackson. And where I'm from. Houston is much closer to where I'm from than than Oxford. If you can understand what I'm saying, like the, the part of Jackson that I'm from looked to Houston for like artistic inspiration, be a, you know, whether it's UGK or, or, or Scarface or shit, even back, 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 Gangsta Nip or Beyonce or so like when I tell people in Jackson, I'm moving to Houston, they're like, that's what's up. Like they, they think I'm coming home. When I told people I'm moving to Oxford, they like, I mean, real talk, it was a thing for my friends. They were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you do that? And I made it work and I had a good reason for doing it. And I don't, I'm not sure where I'm going to end up next year. You know, my, my job at Rice starts in January. As we know with COVID, a whole lot of different things can happen in the next few months. But I, I do not think I'll be at the University of Mississippi because there's just things in my department and things institutionally I just can't be on board with, you know, and they're not going to change. Like they've showed me and told me they're not going to change. And then it's just like, you know, life is kind of short. It's just a job, but I want to be at a job where I'm respected and a job where I respect the people I work with. I just can't keep on, you know, I sold hundreds of thousands of copies of Heavy. Everywhere that book goes, it says University of Mississippi Professor K.S.A. Layman. Long Division is coming out. Like that shit is shipping like 50,000. Everywhere it says University of Mississippi Professor K.S.A. Layman. So everywhere I go, I'm a commercial for this institution that won't do right. And I just want to stop being a commercial for them. How do you balance that feeling for the university, even for the students, with some of the institutional decisions they're making? I'm asking right now to be completely blunt because we're having this big conversation about how UNC offered Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure and then the board got a backlash because conservatives were upset over the 1619 project. And now they have revoked her tenure offer. I think the way it's working is they're just offering her basically a five-year professorship rather than a tenured title. You know, the board of trustees at some of these public universities in the South are maybe more conservative than the faculty or even the students are. And you know, at the University of Mississippi, I'm just not sure if that's true. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there are a lot of loving progressive people that I've met, but you know, Trump won the county that I live in. And Trump didn't win that county just because those people who voted to keep that Confederate statue up there, he didn't win that county just because the headhunter who became the president, blah, blah, blah. Like, there are a lot of people there who want the old Oxford back. And my thing is, I feel you. And really, I'm like, you can have that shit back. The thing that breaks us is when the people who you trust to be different than institutions act just like the institutions. And what I'm trying to say is this, when I got my job offer to go to Rice, that was a personal private thing, right? I get a job offer, Ole Miss makes me a counter offer that is let's say $40,000 less 
than what the, the offer I got from Rice. That's between me and this person. I'm telling you now, that's my information. You don't go and tell everybody on campus that KSA got the highest you know, retention offer in the history of the college, when let's say that's true. But the other thing is true is KSA is thinking about turning down $40,000 more to go somewhere else. You can, you can present it that way. So when people who you trust do this thing where they think Black people don't have any private information that should be ours, and you're going to tell everybody on campus, which is going to breed more contempt, especially an institution like that that doesn't pay anybody what they're worth, I got to get the fuck up out of there, not because simply because of the administration, but because the people I thought I trusted are doing shit that I would only think the administration would do. I'm not telling anybody's anybody on that campus if I knew how much they made, if I knew what kind of retention offer. I'm not telling nobody about that, brother. That's private information. When they went and told everybody and people started being all resentful and shit, I'm like, nah, this cannot be the place for me. Do you think Mississippi as a whole is taking steps back right now? Yes, bro. Like, me, you know, I wrote about this in that thing, the backlash. We know in our state, any perceived victory by Black people is going to be met with absolute terror. And Tate is going to make sure of it. That Supreme Court is going to make sure of it. We're going to counter that backlash with, like, more shit, more organized stuff, more direct action. The thing about our state is, like, all of those people who are fighting to get that flag down, fighting for medical marijuana, they're fighting to make the state better. They're fighting to make the state open. They're fighting to make it so like children will stop leaving the state and more people might want to come in. And some people are like, nah, we don't want that. We want the same shit we've always had. And so that's the thing about a job. Like I'm not ceding Mississippi to those people, but I, I can be better to Mississippi if I work somewhere where I'm respected and where I respect the people I work with. I can be better. You know what I'm saying? I'm not 26 anymore, I'm 46. If I work at a job and it's bad on my heart, I, I might not be alive tomorrow. And like that job just got too worrisome for me, particularly now with the backlash. You know, every time I write something, these motherfuckers are like, you know, threatening my life or trying to write shit to that institution to get me fired. And, you know, I'm not running away from those motherfuckers at all. It's just like, I'm just doing what my family really wanted me to do, which is to do my work, do what I could do, and now be around some people that I feel a little bit more comfortable. I feel much more comfortable with Mississippians than any other group of people in the world. But that specific institution and that specific department is not something that I can be healthy in. Do you want to be in academia long term? I'm always have a toe. I'm a teacher. I'm always have a toe. But that's not the majority of my working life. You know, what I mean, like I have, I have, I have many jobs, and you know, everybody wants to talk about my pay. Like the academic part of my job is the least well-paying part. It doesn't mean it gets the least amount of my time, but it's not all consuming. You know, you grew up in this academia shit. It, it becomes all consuming and you all, all you talk about is tenure this and progress, blah, 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 but like, nah, like this is where I teach. This is where I learn. This is where I collaborate. But I do that also now with TV. I do it with film. I do that with books. I do it with lots of other things. So I reached a point, I realized early on, really at Millsap, so I, I couldn't really understand it, but I realized that vastly that like the only way somebody like me can be healthy in academia is if I don't have both feet in it. I mean, because if I have both feet in it, I'm going to, the contradictions and the paradoxes are going to be too much for me and I'm going to get sick. But I can, I can put one foot in it, but they don't like that. They actually have rules against you. They call it moonlighting. They actually have rules saying you can't make more money at other places than you make in academia. But at the same time, they want you to do the things that are going to make you more money so they can 
reap the benefit of having your name associated with them across the world. I'm never going to be like that professor I used to be, which was like academia, like hat, academia <laughs> outfit, academia shoes. I'm going to have an academia like sleeve on my left leg. And that's, that's about it, bro. That's about it. You said you're working on TV and movies right now. We're also seeing a conversation, I guess, a lot right now about Black trauma on film and on, on TV. There's so much rich storytelling in Black history. You know, how, how do you write about that without feeling like it's teetering into exploitation? I feel like sometimes when we're talking about Black art, there, there are these rules that get developed and I don't think we take enough time to consider like the rule makers. I think a lot of people who talk about trauma don't know what they're talking about. Like, like no, I'm not dissing, I'm saying like when we use that word ad nauseum, I, I don't think we know what we're saying. Are we saying pain? Are you saying black pain? Are you saying like the re reverberation of black pain? And one way I try to deal with it as a writer is like, you know, it's the same shit in heavy, right? Like, you know, I'm writing about being sexually molested by my mother's student. And what literally happened was like, you know, she put her breast in my mouth and I remember she had made pork chops, rice and gravy. And I remember thinking, oh shit, she not gonna like me cause her breast gonna be smelling like pork chops, rice and gravy. Like that happened. So the question is for me, do you necessarily add the comic to what people want to call the traumatic? But for me, like the traumatic and the comic and the absurd go hand in hand. Do you know what I'm saying to say? And so I don't like a lot. I don't like watching a lot of death period, no matter what the fuck the shit is. Like, I don't like a lot of video games because of the death shit. Like, I just can't get into like the body dismemberment and shit like that. I'm sure there's lots of theoretical arguments to talk about like the beauty in that shit. I can't see it. But what I'm not going to do is hold black artists to a higher or a different standard, like to be like, you can't write about black death when this country brought us motherfucking here to work and die. Like they brought us here literally to work and die. And we can't write about suffering and black death. Now I, I want people to write about it with a little bit more skill and like dynamism, but I, I'm not on that black death train. Like I, I, I do think corporations will like just titillate everybody, but I just think we need to be sure we know what terms we're using before we use those terms. So after these two books, what can you tell us about what's next for you? Well, you know, Issa Rae got the heavy book. So, you know, that film is going to start going into production soon. We're getting the script right, uh, more right, writer than it was at first. Super excited about that film. It's heavy, a film, but, you know, I didn't write the film. So it's so it's different than, you know, I'm, I'm one of the producers and all that. I didn't craft that film. So it's somebody else's adaption of that. And, and I'm really excited about that. I'm, you know, also doing some 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 TV and stuff and uh, that I hope I can talk about publicly in the, in the near future. And, and I got another novel. I got a novel to turn into my uh, my editor tonight. And I got a picture book coming out next next June called City Summer, Country Summer. And I'm just at that point where I'm just collaborating with a lot of people and it's just happy. It makes my insides happy to do that kind of work. Can we expect you to make a cameo in Heavy the Movie? Are you going to be on screen at all? Oh, hell no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that'd be interesting. What would I, I don't know what the fuck a cameo, that'd be Maybe, yo, that maybe I can be, maybe the character can be at a blackjack table and I can be there, you know, losing all my money next to the character, which would be like playing myself, you know, right next to myself. So I, if I make a cameo, it's going to be someone in the casino losing all their money because I could play that well. So <laughs> I'm telling you, I could kill that role. <laughs>
sounds like you have a draft of a book due in a few hours. So we'll, we'll let you get back to that. And thank you for all your time, Kiese. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate this. And that's our show, folks. Thanks to Kiese Lehman for joining us once again. You can find his books and latest work at www.kieselayman.com. If you're somebody who's constantly revising your own ideas about the South and your place in it, then why don't you sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter where we go deep on a different Southern perspective each week. Sign up for it at www.reckonsouth.com newsletters. The Reckon Interview podcast is produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. And our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. Hey, if you've listened this far, I'm hoping you're going to take a quick moment to leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts so we can keep growing our audience and having more great conversations about the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.